an ordained minister has decided to give up God for a year. How the heck do you just up and become atheist after being a pastor? What I'm most worried about right now is figuring out how I can live openly and honestly. I am finally free to be me. I have no idea how to find friends or become a part of a community that's not religious. What does life look like after church, after religion, after God? That's, you know, that, that's it in a nutshell. This is the Life After God podcast, a conversation on the space between belief and unbelief and beyond with your host, Ryan Bell. Hello and welcome to the Life After God podcast. My name is Ryan Bell and I am your host. This is episode 63. Today I'm excited to share with you my interview with John Gray, which I recorded on November 23, the day after Thanksgiving here in the U.S. Um, Professor Gray spoke with me from his native England. Uh, He is a political philosopher with interests in analytic philosophy and the history of ideas. He retired in 2008 as school professor of European thought at the London School of Economics and Political Science. He contributes regularly to The Guardian, The Times Literary Supplement, and The New Statesman. Uh, Professor Gray is the author of numerous books, including False Dawn, The Delusions of Global Capitalism, Straw Dogs, Thoughts on Humans and Other Animals, Black Mass, Apocalyptic Religion and the Death of Utopia, and most recently, Seven Types of Atheism, which is not so much a strict typology of atheism. After all, what would such a project entail since atheism is one thing and one thing only? Uh, It is rather a fascinating, enlightening, sometimes irritating survey of the various schools of thought into which atheists have fallen in the past several centuries. Uh, Professor Gray is a controversial figure, uh, especially for professed humanists like myself, due to his unforgiving attacks on humanism. What I hope you'll find here is a slightly more nuanced explanation of his thoughts than you may have heard before. And so let's get to it. Here is my conversation with John Gray. It seems to me that the central thesis of your book, Seven Types of Atheism, is that Western philosophy uh, can't escape the gravitational pull of Christianity, that that humanism Mm. has merely replaced Yahweh with the myth of human progress, and science Mm. is like Mm. the sacred text. Do do I have that Mm. roughly correct? Uh, Yes. Uh, uh, you do. Um, uh, I put it the following way, that um, what is widely regarded at the present time and perhaps over the last century or so as secular thinking uh, involves the rejection of certain types of theistic belief, but not of the um, underlying way of thinking that went with theism. So uh, people who... um, uh, many, perhaps most, contemporary atheists and uh, many humanists um, think that by simply rejecting belief in um, a transcendental God that created the world and and them and lays down ethical laws for all of mankind, that they've, um, by rejecting that set of beliefs, which comes from principally uh, for most of them from Christianity, and uh, they've uh, stepped outside of theism, but um, uh, they haven't, it seems to me, because um, their uh, uh, way of thinking still includes, in fact, as at its very center, 
ideas which are um, which depend on uh, theistic uh, assumptions and which aren't find aren't found outside of theism. For example, they assume that um, uh, uh, there's something like a kind of collective human subject, humankind, humanity, sometimes called, which has a single narrative which has goals or aims of its own and that history is the unfolding development of or self-realization of of that collective entity whereas if you'd lived in the ancient uh, european world before christianity took over i mean in ancient greece and rome of course that idea was um, very weak in um uh, greco-roman polytheism uh, which hmm. didn't assume anything of the sort it didn't assume for example that as history went on, human beings would converge on any single set of values. Um, it assumed that uh, there would be continuing conflict of between uh, human values and between different ways of ways of life. So the idea that, uh, that history is teleological, that it's got mm. some built-in, um, whether it's progressive or not, by the way, I mean, um, most humanists have inherited a certain kind of moral optimism from Christianity um, uh, in that um, they uh, see the uh, they see history as essentially redemptive. Uh, I mean, what distinguishes Christianity from many other uh, religions, for example, from Buddhism or Taoism, is uh, uh, is the is the supposition that uh, salvation is possible for humans because of an historical event. In this case, um, uh, Jesus coming to into the human world and then being mm. um, surviving um, death. Uh, um, so, I mean, pretty well all of all Christian denominations have the uh, belief that human events are um, a coherent narrative, and they pretty well all have the idea that it's a, a redemptive uh, narrative. Even Augustine, uh, who, mm. of course, uh, criticizes the uh, um, literal-minded interpretations of that redemptive narrative still thinks of uh, human history as nonetheless morally meaningful in that way, whereas the ancient um, Greek and Roman historians saw history as sort of more like um, um, uh, a natural process in which civilizations uh, arise, they grow up, they reach maturity, they then get old and weak and die and are replaced uh, by barbarism for a time or then by another civilization. So that the idea of history as being a kind of uh, a narrative of redemption, uh, which is found in um, pretty well nearly all the contem contemporary atheists and humanists, is an inheritance from Christianity. It's not only that it's an inheritance, because they could say, you know, if you had a philosopher sitting, sitting between us, they would say, well, the fact that it's that's where that idea comes from. Doesn't mean it's false, but I don't think it's really coherent. Uh, the idea of history, human history, as a, a redemptive uh, story, uh, w without some kind of backing of the kind that um, Christian theism um, gave it. Do you think that it's just sort of an, a coincidence that this sort of redemptive view of history has had mm. the ascendancy in Western philosophy for the last several hundred years? Or or do you think there's something about the human animal that longs for this kind of coherence, uh, this kind of narrative coherence, and, and then sort of seeks out a story that makes sense of the absurdity of, of life? No, I don't think it's a universal human characteristic to see, to look for 
meaning in history as a whole because most human beings didn't until the emergence of Christianity and then of post-Christian humanism. There's nothing like that in Indian civilization, not much in Chinese, uh, Japanese um, civilization. It's really only in the uh, theistic faiths. And the belief that um, um, the secular belief that history has this character of meaning is definitely nothing like universal because it only really arises with the the beginnings of the decay of Christianity in, in Europe in the um, in the 18th century, I mean, it, it emerges a little bit before within Christianity and post-millennialism, with which you will be familiar. The idea yeah. that um, uh, so the idea that humans can improve the world, and it's after that improvement has taken place that um, uh, Jesus returns and so on. But in the more secular forms of the European Enlightenment, um, uh, you're really talking about uh, just the last few centuries. So, I mean, I find that. Very implausible, extremely implausible to imagine that this small section of human experience in part one civilization in the world, one part of of, of a single civilization in the world over the last two or three hundred years, should reveal some um, universal or or perennial human need. Certainly humans seek meaning in their lives. They try to make it, but that doesn't at all necessarily involve the idea that human history is meaningful. I mean, you don't yeah. find that. You don't find it in Homer. Right. Yeah, it's very absurd uh, in Homer. He sort of just lucks out on his way home. Yeah. yeah I mean, it's just a Odysseus. series of... Uh, yes. It's just a series of uh, struggles and chances and mischances, and there's no... There's a personal narrative of Odysseus and uh, um, uh, of his relations with others that he interacts with, but there's no universal narrative. That's a very... Uh, uh, late development, and I think it's a development from within theism and from within Christianity as a whole. But of course, now that um, Western thinking and even Western culture has been dominated by it for the last couple of centuries, um, many people really can't do without it. They find the view of history, which actually is often presented in Shakespeare, in this respect, in Lear and other. Of, of his more tragic place, stepping outside, I think, of Christianity um, altogether. And uh, they find that intolerable and uh, uh, can't live with it. But most of humankind hasn't been like that. I mean, most of humankind has either thought that meaning was guaranteed in history, was guaranteed by a transcendental power, God, or they haven't thought that there was any meaning in human history as a whole at all, and it wasn't at all tragic. It didn't even occur to them uh, as a possibility. So, um, uh, and this is why, I mean, one of the reasons, um, uh, one of the reasons that uh, people find it very difficult to understand uh, what I mean, even though I've reformulated dozens of times, I've more or less given up now. If they don't want to understand, that's their problem. They can, they can, they can read someone else instead. Uh, when I say that there's uh, no progress, uh, I mean, they. Uh, I mean, for them, it's obvious that there's progress in a variety of ways. They think of technical progress, you know, the fact that our the drugs they buy at the drugstore are better and often cheaper than they were before. That they have mm. smartphones. They think there's moral progress as well, because otherwise they wouldn't be themselves, would they? I mean, they nearly always uh, think of themselves as embodiments of, however imperfect, of of, of moral progress. <laughs> but of course, what's meant by denying progress is, I mean, is is just a reasserter a human orthodoxy which existed in most uh, civilizations in the world for the last 
two or three thousand years, which would say, yes, there are periods of uh, advance in which universal human goods are uh, increased. Uh, you have societies become richer, more knowledgeable, more um, um, peaceful, uh, with, and then they start to decay. In other words, if you went back to, again to not only the ancient Greeks, but the ancient Indians and others, you would find the and Romans, you would find the idea taken as a commonplace that um, there were periods of uh, advance in, in um, human events in human history, but that they were, they were undone by, regularly undone by permanent flaws in, in human beings, so that although there is advance in human knowledge, for example, um, it doesn't make human beings any more reasonable. Uh, although there are even advances in uh, human civilization, the quality of human civilization, they don't last very long. Uh, um, they tend to be followed by periods of decline or, or barbarism. That very simple idea is in fact too simple for practically anyone to understand now, although it was the idea that was taken for granted by uh, pretty well everyone in the world until about uh, two or three hundred years ago. And the reason that it's um, hard, one reason that it's hard to understand, apart from historical parochialism, is, um, is that um, most post-Christians, and perhaps even many Christians these days, derive a substantial part of the meaning of their own lives from that belief. If you take it away, in other words, you could say, well, yes, you can do good in particular contexts, what William Blake Corbin youth particulars, but the good that you achieve in society will be uh, will benefit people for several generations. But as the, as the society or the civilization grows older or comes up against intractable problems, it'll be washed away. Hmm. It'll be swept away by uh, barbarism or some disaster. That idea, which was a commonplace, as I say, in, in the ancient world, it's just too much for people to stand now, so they, they can't understand that simple commonplace. Although, if you take a, a, a large enough, not 300 years, but say 3,000 3, years, it's, uh, it's amply corroborated by human history. And even in the history of the 20th century, mm. uh, was a history of utter disasters in uh, Europe from the First World War onwards interwar fascism leading to Nazism, a uh, disaster in Russia and then in the Soviet state that followed uh, colossal losses of life, followed by further disasters in Maoism and, uh, mm. and so forth. And now, uh, uh, from, from saying that, um, uh, something like what is now underway couldn't happen. In other words, the, re the reemergence of types of fascism or neo-fascism in Europe and of the far right in America, the partial undoing of liberal civilization, which is actually underway now. From saying that, it was completely impossible. It would never happen. That only a, a nihilist or a pessimist or a misanthrope could possibly imagine it as a real possibility. All these liberals are panicking now all over the place and saying, uh, and, uh, and saying the game's up. It's a catastrophe. How can we go on? Or they think that there might be some that the, what we're going through now is a kind of brief blip, and we'll get that in the politics of Europe and America. So it, it seems, as I just look at the situation, that the, the positivists, the humanists that are also mm. sort of scientific positivists that are writing books mm. and speaking on this subject lately, um, are also sort of tacitly involved in the right word shift that's happening in many of them are i think yes many of them are 
Yeah. Oddly enough. Yeah, people that I've been sort of, uh, you know, reliably liberal in their Mm. sort of generally speaking, Mm. you know, human rights and all the rest Mm. have sort of participated, are participating now given the demographic shifts Mm. in Europe and America in a kind of racist, anti-immigration type of rhetoric. And it seems to me this is against the idea of progress that they themselves aspire to or believe Mm. in. Um, I don't know if you have any comment on that. Well, it's a difficult issue because I um, think that, uh, um, you know, m- much of this, the, I know the situation in Europe better, uh, although I've been in America quite a bit over the last few years, but I know the situation in Europe that better, which is that the um, problems around the rise of the, the, the reemergence of the far right um, which I've been, by the way, warning against for about 20 years, mm, but uh, yeah. a complete waste of time, um, uh, that uh, uh, it partly comes comes from a variety of uh, reasons, of course, but from a kind of hubristic liberalism in Europe, the idea of dissolving borders in Europe, having no borders at all, and having a gigantic uh, labor market which extends from Stockholm to uh, Albania, for example, so anyone could move. Anyway, it comes up against so many difficulties and, and, and tensions and traditional attachments and economic inequalities and dislocations of populations and so on that it was sort of clear to me that it would produce um, uh, a major um, political reaction at um, some point, and that was partly triggered by the economic, the financial crisis of 2007 and 2008, which um, and in Europe by the single European currency, which made it harder for countries like mm-hmm. Italy, where, which is now run by more or less by a crypto-fascist government. Mm-hmm. Something everyone said was impossible uh, has in fact happened. Um, uh, uh, it made it very difficult for them to, to adapt to these, to these changes. Uh, so in fact, it, there's, a, there's a liberal hubris involved in, um, in this uh, as one of the preconditions of... Uh, the reemergence of this far right. I mean, after all, you know, one, one, the question has to be, you know, why has it happened now, and why has it happened in so many different countries at this time? I mean, it can't simply be, you know, there's a sort of um, queer sort of idea of evil hovering about in this liberal humanism. They, I mean, they, the liberals who've been in charge for the last 30 years can't really, they're not willing to see any, any errors in, in their policies, or if they were, they just say they weren't liberal enough. Right. Um, uh, um, if only we'd been, I mean, that's a kind of very ideological stance, of course. It goes against something they also claim, which is that they are highly empirical thinkers, what they're sometimes called fallibilists. They're ready to recognize when they're wrong. They're never, the current generation of liberals practically never recognizes that it's been wrong. Right. It, it always insists that the solution would be more liberalism, more uh, strong, rather like the Marxist who uh, studied the former Soviet Union, if only it had been Trotsky, not Stalin, everything would have been all right. These are, um, I mean, I think these are all uh, kind of, so that's a kind of complicated issue, but I, I do agree with you to one extent that, which is that, to some extent, which is that the, uh, I mean, many sort of rather primitive um, forms of scientism are being reinvented or rediscovered by these um, prophets of um, world improvement. For, I mean, there is, a, there is a sort of hidden eugenics, it's not so mm. always so hidden eugenics in the agenda, which, of course, was a very strong feature of secular humanism up to um, the Second World War, uh, which um, 
invalidated it. It was invalid already intellectually, and I would say morally, but invalidated it as a public stance because of what was done by by the Nazis. But that's now sort of retreating into the in, in, into the past. Another thing which I would mention is that a part of this um, reemerges of the far right and. In also the far right has been a revival of what can only be called anti-Semitism. I mean, that's right. partic- particularly so uh, on some sections of the British far left, w- where um, there's absolutely no doubt that there's a revival of anti-Semitism. And horrifying though this is, it doesn't surprise me hmm. entirely that it's happened, because what tends to happen in times of crisis is that um, everyone or many people, including now, it now appears liberal, progressive rationalists look round for some group which um, they can demonize and uh, claim of causing these problems. They never looked at the problems in the liberal society them, them, themselves. Right, where it could so, have emerged. So this is all very, sorry, yep. Where, where, they, where, where, where it could have emerged within their own ideas. Yes, where, which, where, where there were flaws in their own ideas or their policies. Not flaws only coming from not being liberal enough, but flaws in the very ideas. Right. That's too challenging a, a position to adopt. So and threatening. Very, I mean, I think threatening to people's yes. identity. Yes, because it means that the identity that they base much of their lives and hopes and expectations on and about the way the world will be as they get older and as their children grow up is false. And uh, that's a that's a that's a frightening prospect for them. Let me let me go back to something you were saying earlier about mm. sort of this myth of of human progress or the idea of mm. a sort of unitary human um, subject subject and vision of the world and kind of progress um, working itself out. Yeah. Let, so how, where does that leave us regarding the notion of justice? And I, I know for mm. for many progressive Christians, including mm. you know progressive. Um, humanists that mm. that the idea of justice i mean as a christian mm. justice was grounded in the idea of god's uh, authority mm. um human mm. beings created in god's image i know you mm. write about sort of the illusion of i don't know if you use the word illusion but sort of this illusion of the of human dignity and mm. that humanists try to carry over from the dignity that human beings under christianity or in, human uniqueness certainly but i guess my question is basically is there a notion of justice that we can um, put our finger on and uh, like even if we don't believe that the arc of the universe is bending towards that justice mm-hmm. can we at least mm-hmm. um, identify in your mind um, something that we would call just and good um, and work well, towards we can it? Make, we, can, we, can, I mean, we can make um, decisions about uh, I mean there are two ways to answer this one is that I'm not a, a radical relativist or a post- modernist. I'd almost think of myself as a pre-modernist, actually, in some ways. But uh, um, uh, I think some of the ancient writers, religious and not religious, are, I think, incomparably wiser than uh, mm-hmm. many modern ones. But um, uh, but uh, since I'm not a post-modernist, I do think there is such a thing as human nature. And I do think that that goes with a certain set of goods and bads being species-wide. There are certain things that can be done or that can happen to a human being that are never good for that human being. Being tortured, for example, um, uh, or suffering traumatic loss in infancy. They leave, these leave a permanent mark. And these, of course, are no different in this respect, no different from other animals. I mean, um, if you, uh, I used to live in California for a while back in uh, 10 or 20 years ago, and 
I used to go to a number of zoos in California, and there was a clear difference between the behavior of animals in good zoos and the behaviors of animals in bad zoos. They mm-hmm. didn't actually, I mean, in other words, the sort of postmodernist idea of the infinite elasticity of human beings, that they're just a sort of set of stories they tell themselves, and there's nothing permanent underneath that. Um, it doesn't apply to uh, other animals. And I would say that it's a kind of neo-Christian idea that humans are unique in this respect, especially if you're a Darwinist, which many of these progressive humans, uh, uh, progressive humans say they are. That there, is a, there is a constancy of human um, needs. Uh, uh, so uh, there are universal human values, but that by itself doesn't give you a single idea of justice or a single morality because very often these values conflict with each other and in fact one way you can understand human cultures is that they emerge human civilizations from different settlements among these universal values Um, so um, pretty well all cultures have an idea of justice and it may be that there are certain minimal elements of that that are more or less universal but what you definitely can't do is absolutize the current uh, liberal conception of justice and say that's what humankind has always been uh, kind of looking for. That's that's where it's that's that the, the, that that was that was there all, all, all along, which is a very implausible view actually when you think of it. You mean what does it mean? It means that a certain sort of subset of Western Christian 20th century or 21st century opinion has stumbled on or somehow fashioned the the universal human um, demand for justice or a kind of universal essence for justice. Remember Pascal, after he was a Christian, he said it's a strange kind of justice that's on different, on different sides of the Pyrenees. Remember that in the, in the, uh, in the Pensee? Um, he was quite relativistic about ju- justice. Not completely, of course, because God was in the background, but he also believed in something like human nature. Um, although he said Habit was the second human nature of the second nature of, um, of, of human beings, but uh, he had something in common with a uh, skeptic like Mon- Montaigne. So, um, I, I, um, and another sort of important point is that even if we could flesh out some broader conception of justice, it would contain contradictions. Sure. Contradictions. Well, and this seems to be the main problem when we're talking about moral theories, you know, whether you're, yeah. you know, consequentialist yeah. or a deontologist. These are not yeah. absolute theories that stand by themselves. You know, part of the problem, or maybe the mm-hmm. problem, and and I think it's important to discuss them, but they don't, mm-hmm. to my understanding, none of them stand on their own. You, you can't purely be uh, a consequentialist. I mean, you could try, but I think you'd soon. Well, find... some people try and try, and some people sort of carry it off. I mean, there's this movement called effective altruism. Yes, which to me, it's a complete absurdity, as far as I'm concerned. But yeah. uh, you see, what they like is the idea of that they're rational. Right. So they apply, I, apply to ethics a kind of maximizing idea, which they think is essential to being rational. So whatever's the maximal produces the maximal good or the maximal value in the world. One, yeah. There's a, there's a duty to pursue it. Of course, you can, I mean, a number of questions you could ask. I mean, <coughs> you know, where does the duty to maximize value come from? Right. You know, especially if you're an atheist. Well, and the uh, same could be it? said for the categorical imperative. I mean, where does, where Very does much so. this Very come much from? So. This, from? From any of these sort of ideas. But there's a more kind of subtle question, which is why should the seeming harmony of a theory uh, be preferred over, the, over actual exper- human experience, which has pretty well always been, actually, I mean, as revealed in 
not so much in philosophy, but in drama and poetry and literature and art, has always been that basic human values conflict with each other. And they, just People the working have, it out as we go along. Yes, just working it out and making choices which might not be the the uh, might not be um, uh, they might be there might be many. In fact, I think there are many moral dilemmas in which uh, there is no single right answer. Sure. Each of us strives to get one that we're satisfied with, but it wouldn't necessarily be one that would be the best one for uh, um, um, someone else. There might be some solutions that are so bad that no one should adopt them, but there'd be a wide range of other solutions yeah. uh, between which different persons in different circumstances or different cultures or civilizations or traditions or forms of life, shall we say, would would make. And that seems to me to be the reality. So I'm suspicious of um, grand theories of human rights or grand theories of justice. I'm suspicious of them. And I think it's very easy to be carried away from them. It's better to try and stay to, closer to human experience and work out these uh, dilemmas in, so to speak, um, 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 local terms. Well, and this is where I, I mean, I wouldn't consider myself a radical postmodernist, but I think this mm-hmm. is the for, to, again, to my lay understanding, mm-hmm. sort of the initial impulse of some philosophers mm-hmm. in France in the, you know, mm-hmm. in the 20th century to say mm-hmm. these grand narratives about mm-hmm. human potential and human mm-hmm. achievement have ended mm-hmm. up with body counts in the millions. And, and to be skeptical about those stories is a useful thing. Well, I've said somewhere that philosophies of history are rationalizations for mass murder. Wow. Um, um, uh, on on the whole, and um, uh, but I mean I agree that's that's if you like a, a valid insight of postmodernism. Though you also find it in Montaigne. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, so it isn't it isn't necessarily postmodernist kind of idea. And what I what I reject in postmodernism though is the idea that um, uh, mm, there is no substratum of enduring human nature of human of that i mean i think i think the the, the clearly are a range of um, needs and impulses and desires and um, activities that go with being human just as there are for sure uh, other animals and how could that be otherwise unless you thought that um, something like a transcendental god had gifted human beings with a soul which was more some kind of freedom that other animals didn't have so i mean i don't think that i mean so yeah there's a radical uncertainty in in jettisoning a theistic vision of the world mm. and i think mm. what i take away from your work both here mm. and in in straw dogs is mm. that we are largely uncomfortable with that uncertainty and the messiness of mm. life as it is and we want mm. to make it conform to some kind of um, ideal and meaningful and, pattern. Yeah, meaningful and pattern. and I think the 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 skeptical. A yeah, a rational pattern. And and I actually one of the other books I've been slowly wrestling with, even though it's very short, um, is Max Horkheimer's book um, Reason Eclipse of Reason. Yeah, and yes. he's really you know I I love it because it's not one of these classical philosophical texts. It's actually mm-hmm. it feels like a diary to me, like of him yeah. just yeah. wrestling with 
how did we get here? Like, how did we go mm. from, you know, Comte's vision of a, mm. you know, humanity rising, in, you know, from, mm. from its primitive nature into something mm. beautiful and progressive mm. into mm. Nazi concentration camps? Mm. And he's mm. saying there's something about this celebration or this almost worship of the human intellect mm. and human reason that mm. has led us astray. Is that, am I yeah. on the right track there? Yes, I think so. I mean, there may not be an inevitable kind of, I mean, the, the Holocaust and the mm-hmm. Gulag may not have been inevitable, but there, there, there were elements within the European uh, and Western tradition of modern rationalism mixed with these vast kind of moral hopes inherited from Christianity, which didn't exist in the ancient world. There were elements within that which led to, uh, uh, which, which, which led to, to the catastrophes that then happened. Maybe, as I say, not by strict inevitability, but it worked out that, that, it allowed that way. For it. There were some blind spots inherent in it that allowed well, for Well, those... you could even, let's take it a different way. You could see, I mean, many of the, you know, many of the regimes that have existed throughout history have been um, uh, uh, criminal in various ways. They've been tyrannous in very various ways. But modern totalitarianism, which I sort of date as starting with the Jacobins, is different because um, it aims the aims of the different forms of modern totalitarianism is to reshape society completely, or even to reshape humanity, mm. humankind, to produce a higher level of human being, like an engineering, uh, re-engineer humankind, and that could have uh, a right-wing form in which much of existing humanity is rejected uh, entirely as being inferior, so therefore only for enslavement or even um, mass extermination, or you can have a, uh, a seemingly more egalitarian view like that in um, the early Soviet Union in which uh, large numbers of what were called former persons, that was right. the legal, even legal phrase they used, could be stripped of all their rights, and including rights to food and so on. They can be dispensed with because they belong, whether they're peasants or intellectuals or priests or whoever they happen to be, they can be dispensed with because they don't fit into the higher humanity which is being fashioned. They're just the human remnants of a more uh, primitive type of uh, human development. So they can be kind of got rid of. I have two sort of two questions that are related that I want to sort of get out and then let you sort of reflect on them. One one is um, if, let's say, um, you know, if, let's say you're right and that um, modern secular humanists have this sort of positivistic view of the world that it can mm. be improved on a trajectory and so forth. Um, mm. Like what's so and that wa- the improvements are cumulative. That's the key that part. they're accumulative, right? And that we're sort of there's in the a way teleology. that the growth of knowledge is cumulative. Okay, right. That's what they think that the that the human that human knowledge is growing and that moral development happens kind of coterminous with it, that. And, yeah. and that there's a teleology to human history, much like Christianity. Yeah. Um, yeah. So one part of the question is, what's, so, what's wrong with that? Let's say that gives a former Christian some anchor in their transition out of religion into the secular world. So, like, so what? Like, and I've read some reviews of your book where you know, other reviewers are saying, okay, maybe you're right, John, but so what? Like, why, why is this a big deal? Well, I don't know, one thing is it undermines the claims of the more aggressive of these uh, humanists and atheists that they are post-religious. I see. But I what mean, if they aren't? Thing. Like, what if, what if secular humanism can't get out, as I said earlier, can't escape the gravitational pull 
of theism mm. or, or a kind of religionism. Mm. Um, what's, what's wrong with that? Um, one thing, well, they, uh, you know, my view is that um, um, uh, myths of one kind or another are uh, I- I- inevitable in human life. Uh, they might be personal myths connected with family history or one's own biography. Uh, the writer J.G. Ballard, who I knew quite well in the last years mm. of his life, used mm. to talk about uh, the way he'd reprocessed his early um, traumatic experiences in Shanghai into a kind of personal mythology which appeared in his fiction. That was a kind of strictly personal mythology, if you like, of low-flying planes and um, empty swimming pools and, and whatnot. He turned them in, into, turned these experiences he had, he, I think, into a kind of, uh, uh, in a, into a kind of psychological alchemy into um, into uh, symbols which for him were very positive by the t- by that time because he'd. Uh, uh, they, they they had a lot of beauty in them, so it can be a personal mythology or a, or a, 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 the mythology of a, of a great historic traditional religion, uh, or 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 you're saying, well, what's wrong with the myths of secular humanism? Sh- what's wrong with them is they're shallower than, I mean, if you want a rich, broad, more than personal mythology, I'd say take up a traditional religion, um, uh, the, uh, because that's um, if they're there, they've been around a long time. Some of the myths, like the myth of Genesis, seems to me almost inexhaustibly profound. Um, um, but don't pretend that you're living without without um, myths, because if you do, you'll panic quite easily when the myth is falsified by experience. I mean, the right. advantage of the, of the of the Christian mythologies and theistic mythologies is that they're harder to falsify. Right. I mean, uh, uh, um, you know, they may, as you have done in your own life, you may move away from them for various reasons, and that I think is a very makes it uh, it, it makes it more interesting to talk to you than it is to talk to someone who's only ever had one hmm. set of uh, beliefs and, and myths. Um, um, uh, but the the trouble with the secular myths uh, of liberal humanism is that they're repeatedly falsified and they're repeatedly People who hold to them, if they um, are uh, panic when history starts going the wrong way. So, I mean, if you think of John Stuart Mill, I mean, I spent about 20 years in another life kind of working mm. on John Stuart Mill. A very interesting thinker in many ways, but a lot wrong with it. But if you think absolutely none of the major um, um, upheavals of the 20th century was anticipated in this work, but not only was it not anticipated, were they not anticipated, they weren't even possible. There, was, there could be nothing like hmm. uh, Bolshevism or Nazism. There could be nothing like the ethnic nationalism, which has now re-emerged in many parts of Europe and also nativist, nativism, which has re-emerged in America. The, the test of a myth is not its truth, but its truthfulness hmm. to deeper human experience and more enduring human experience. Um, and uh, the test is is it truthful to um, human experience in many circumstances and in many uh, uh, over long periods of time? And in that sense, I think you know, if you want a myth, if that's what you're looking for, a myth that's more than purely personal, then you're better off with, with the traditional myths. I mean, I think Bertrand Russell, towards the end of his life, a kind of great atheist, he said, I'm not sure this is always true, by the way, but he said, religions are like wines, they get better as they age. Mm. And uh, liberal humanism is quite a kind of... Um, brief, short-lived uh, religion. It might not be around for very much longer as well. It could vanish the way 
many religions have done. After all, most of the religions that humans have had in their history have vanished. Well, one last one last question, and I mm. um, I think one of my concerns about the the positivists that we've been talking mm. about, mm. Um, people like, and I'll put a name on it just this once, and I, you know, I know you have a long running. Uh, debate with Steven Steven Pinker, yes. Mm. So part of the problem I have with him, and I see him on Twitter and so forth. It's it's mm. he says, oh, um, you know, this is the least least violent era that we've ever had. So the the, yeah. the implication of this to me in a yeah. modern context is, oh, I know that your your son was just shot in the street by the police officers, but don't mm. worry because this is the least violent we've ever been. Or a terrorist. Or terror. Right, exactly, and it's it's really not very comforting, you know, or not. I mean, not that we're only looking for comfort; we're looking also for solutions. But but it's not really useful to say to someone Mm -hmm. who's experiencing an uptick in violence in their life. Say you live in the Gaza Strip, and you're being reassured that you know this is the most peaceful humanity has ever been. One of and and so likewise, one of my concerns about some of the the possible Mm -hmm. takeaway from your work is that Mm -hmm. the opposite might be taken away, which is you know, the vagaries of, of human existence, it's sort of absurd, there's no meaning to be found in it. Therefore, you know, as, as you said, on, I think on page one uh, of, of your book, um, uh, speaking about uh, previous um, atheists in, in history, that they were not looking for cosmic meaning, they were content with the world as they found it. And, and I immediately think about people who can't afford to be content with the world as they find it. Like, what, what answer do they have? Well, they, they, I mean, you know, what answers did people have in um, ancient Greece or in the ancient tragedies or, or in Shakespeare or in, I mean, what, did they actually, what do actually people do when they're up against the wall? Um, did they reach for a copy of John Stuart Mill? <laughs> um, uh, you know, they say, well... Uh, or enlightenment you know, now. Yeah, you know, 300 years from now, if this will all be sorted out. I'm going to be shot, they might be saying. My family is going to be murdered. Mm. Uh, but still, that's not really so. I mean, what, what have they? Uh, what have they actually? Done? I mean, by the way, the. I mean, the idea that um, you know we're getting. Um, I don't want to go into the statistical stuff. I think um, Nassim Taleb has criticised many of the statistical errors in Pinker's account. But one of the sort of features that I mean, he basically represents war as a kind of vice of uh, primitive societies, which I find. Uh, I mean, it's both obviously false, but it's also um, almost obscene. I mean, if you think of uh, the Southeast Asia, for example, um, uh, like all human societies, it was imperfect. But before the wars of um, the mid-20th century, before the French wars and then the American wars, before the French wars, there was the Japanese, before those wars, um, it was relatively highly peaceful. There were local and national conflicts of various kinds, but nothing like the mass um, um, murder that then took place when the neo-colonial wars of um, the mid-20th century leading up to the Vietnam War occurred. Uh, to attribute that terrible 30 years war if you, to the, the backwardness of that society is just a sort of an incredible... Mm. Uh, fantastical insult, as well as being uh, kind of clearly, clearly false. They were just caught up in a kind of vortex of global conflict, and the, in many ways, rather beautiful societies that existed before were destroyed, um, right. completely destroyed. So, 
uh, it's a, it's an astonishingly, but I mean, it's characteristic. I mean, what he's, what he's, what he's, I mean, what he's, I mean, I've argued in many places. Well, I mean, his audience consists of rattled liberals, the anxious liberals who look around the world and it's not going the way they think. So they're reassured to hear that it is, in fact, it isn't in many, mostly getting less uh, violent. I mean, mm. to the extent that it is less violent, that's, I think, mainly because of nuclear weapons, the, the huge industrial wars of the 20th century. I mean, the First and Second World War became, uh, uh, direct wars of that kind became harder to have, much harder to have when the major powers became nuclear. But then they fought their wars by proxy, as they did in Southeast Asia, for example, or in Korea, mm. um, or now in Yemen. Uh, right. So, um, the number of actual physical casualties may have declined, but that again could be a, a short-term uh, phenomenon uh, as if these conflicts um, spiral, uh, kind of proxy war spiral, out of, uh, out of uh, control. So what do people do when, I mean, actually, you know, actually what people do uh, mostly when they really have their backs up against the wall and there's no way out for them is they revert if you want to use that term to traditional religion hmm. and they, they organize don't. themselves right they organize themselves yeah but they very often they very often i mean if they if they're up against the wall as a single isolated human being or else as a family or, and they can't organize themselves large scale right they very often in fact mostly take up traditional religion in other words i mean it's one of the thinkers uh, in this uh, i cite Shestov said, you know, God is there in human thinking hmm. for what is actually impossible. Right. You're trapped. You're going to be killed. You're going to be murdered. You're going to be killed the next morning. That's a fixed element. You can't do anything about it. Nothing. No one can help you. You're done for. Right. What do you do then? I think, I mean, I suggest you won't, I mean, if you're in a very sumptuous cell before you're going to be, you, <laughs> won't, re you won't reach for John Dewey. Right. Um, you, w you won't reach for John Stuart Mill. You'll reach for some traditional text or maybe for something, a, a poem or a song or a memory or, or a memory. Uh, you know, I don't, um, uh, I mean, most of the, when they think of struggle, these right. liberal humans, they're thinking of some sort of compass conflict. Uh, <laughs> right, 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 right. Uh, uh, in which there's not, in the end, much for them to lose, actually. Um, and so, you know, I find those kinds of conflicts mostly comical. Yeah. Really, real human conflicts are much more desperate affairs. And they're nearly always sort of accompanied by um, uh, um, taking up some sort of, uh, among the protagonists, some sort of religious or quasi-religious um, um, assumption. I think it's better to be, to be, to be, to be uh, uh, open to that. It's not kind of absolutely universal. I mean, there were people who died in the struggle of, against um, Nazism who didn't have any religious beliefs at all. There's a poet I rather like you called Keith Douglas. He, he was killed in the desert in, uh, in Africa at the age of 24, but he would have, the poetry he did was uh, extraordinarily good, even though he was a very young man. And he had no such, no beliefs of any religious kind at all, and he certainly didn't believe in liberal humanism or anything like that. He was asked what he was fighting for. He said, well, I'm actually fighting against Nazism. Right. And of course, people say, well, what do you find? You must have something you're fighting for. He said, no, I'm fighting against Nazism. After it's defeated, if I'm around, he wasn't actually, but if, 
then we'll think about what to do next. I'm fighting against Nazism. I think it's a very profound observation. And um, uh, he was a tremendous poet. If you want to read a poet who's really stepped outside of Christianity, not like the First World, po- World War poets like Owen and, 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 and others, they were all saturated in theism or, or humanism. He stepped right outside that, and yet he went there and he volunteered. He volunteered for the major battles. He actually disobeyed orders to get into one of the major battles, and he was killed. Wow. Um, uh, but he, uh, um, yeah, he wrote some wonderful, uh, um, uh, uh, though in some ways stark, poetry um, uh, describing his, um, his experiences in, 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 that, in, in, in those wars. So people can, um, I think there's a wide, it's simply not true that heroism and nobility require these kind of large-scale kind of, kind of uh, uh, beliefs. And I think actually the worse people's situation is, the less in, they're likely to, to find uh, kind of rationalistic humanism, um, a, 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 plausible, a plausible mythology, because it's been, I mean, certainly, you know, in, in, in Russia, that wasn't the, the case. I mean, right. what happened immediately there. Communism collapses that various types of religion, not always ones I would myself find attractive or pleasant, um, but uh, uh, but uh, kind of remote. So it's a permanent feature of of, of, of human of human life. And uh, but they're real serious conflicts. They're not compass. Uh, it's not compass theater. <laughs> they're really serious uh, right. uh, conflicts. And, and that's what I mean. Just as by the way, a, a feature you can tell how bad things are by how black the humor is in general. Really black humor hmm. tends to go with really bad situations. Um, um, uh, and uh, um, as humor gets milder and more sort of uh, uh, humanistic, you might say, um, it, it, you, you can probably guess that things are getting, getting a bit better. This yeah. is fan- you're, you're a fascinating person to talk to, and I've enjoyed oh, your... I found our conversation very interesting and stimulating. Right? Thank you. Thank you. And I appreciate your book very much, and um, I'll be and sharing And I appreciate your, your questions, and they've been searching ones, but also very, very, very interesting. And I, say, and I say this because it's true, not for any other reason. To me, the most interesting conversations I have are with people who had one set of beliefs or one form of life and then have a different one. I mean, people who've never moved from, you know, from being lifelong atheists or I maybe mean, became atheists when they were 13 or something mm. and stay like that forever. Um, on, on the whole, they're not very interesting to talk to. <laughs> yeah, I understand what you mean. And, and I think there is a um, sort of a, un, I guess we're in a transition phase, it seems like, in society where people are mm. leaving one set of certainties and grappling mm. for another one, and they aren't mm. easily at hand if, if they exist at all. And mm. uh, it's, it's a challenging time. And so I appreciate, um, I appreciate your work in much the way I appreciate the work of Chris Hedges, who tends to yeah. be quite critical without offering a lot of solutions. And he, I asked mm-hmm. him once, you know, why are your books so bleak? Like, why, why don't mm-hmm. you offer any? He's like, well, that's your work. You know, my job is, as I see it, is to explain yeah. how things are. And, and hopefully you and all the others get together and yeah. figure out what to do about it. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you, John. Appreciate it. Yeah. Thanks a lot. Well, that's about all we could fit into an hour's conversation. I had so much more I wanted to ask him and so many thoughts that kept coming up as he spoke. So uh, forgive me for not um, asking the all-important question that's perhaps on your mind right now, Um, but I hope this is enough to stimulate thought and provoke 
discussions uh, on your end, wherever you are, and perhaps inspire some additional reading uh, for you. I want to say a few things here in conclusion, um, just kind of my personal reflections and struggles with the issues that he has raised. I, I struggle at times to understand what he wants of us. What does he want the reader, the listener to do in light of what he thinks is the actual state of human affairs? I tend to be a rather pessimistic person myself uh, in my general outlook on the world and often flirt with nihilism. Um, There's almost something comforting about surrendering to the absurdity of the world and my powerlessness to make any difference whatsoever. And I think John often provides some fodder for one's latent nihilism. Um, At least he does for me. So perhaps I'm drawn to him for that reason, because he gives voice to uh, that sort of that inner um, cynic uh, in me. I also cannot escape, however, my feeling, and perhaps it isn't anything more than a feeling, that life is precious, even sacred in some sense. And if we humans are special, even in the most trivial way, then life is worth fighting for, and not just for mere survival, but also for fullness and richness of life for all of us, as well as our other animal companions. And after thinking about this a great deal, I think what John Gray is responding to in his critiques is the modernist, positivist hubris that often characterizes humanism. I don't always hear it in everybody's expression of humanism, but I have heard it myself, and I've seen these prophets of human progress celebrated by some humanist institutions. And that could easily and understandably give a person the idea that this is humanism in the same way that popular preachers like Joel Osteen or Rick Warren could give you the idea that this is really all Christianity is. But there's a lot more here. I don't think we need to decide between the optimist and the pessimist. The real challenge of post-theism is to be a realist. Sometimes reality gives us reason to hope, and sometimes it does not. I, like many of you, come from a teleological tradition, a philosophical tradition, Christianity, that is steeped in the idea that history is moving toward a utopian end, that there's a purpose or an aim to history. Leaving Christianity, I was confronted with the reality that there is no promised land. Then, to my surprise, many secular humanist authors were offering a non-theistic promised land, one created by technology and scientific progress. But as with any utopianism, there is much that must be left out if the narrative is to hold together. I think the important thing that Professor Gray is saying repeatedly over the years is that the notion of a secular utopia is a mirage. I desperately want there to be an end to history, end not in the sense of a conclusion, but but in the sense of a purpose. I want my life and our collective lives to mean something. I don't want my accomplishments to be washed away like writing in the sand at the beach. Yet, I'm no one in particular. I, I would not be at all surprised to find, many years from now, or maybe not so many years from now, that my meager accomplishments have amounted to literally nothing. I'm not very bothered by this anymore, but beyond my own life, I I don't want to think that the accomplishments of humans over centuries could be eroded or erased so easily. I want to believe that the arc of history bends towards justice. I really do. And if God is not bending it, or at least ensuring that the arc bends, I want to believe that we can bend it, and that that goddamn arc is bending. But if I'm completely honest, I don't believe it. At least I don't believe it's inevitable. Perhaps things bend towards justice, perhaps they don't. It really depends on the decisions that we make later on today and tomorrow and the next day. 
And this is why I don't place much stock in the prophetic declarations of people like Steven Pinker or Michio Kaku, to name just two. It's also why I'm not too bothered by the pessimism of John Gray. Because here, again, is my short take on humanism. Humanism is a commitment without promises, without hope of salvation or an afterlife or utopia in this life, a commitment to care for one another and build a safer world insofar as it's within our power to do so. I know that I must do what I can do while I can do it to make life as fair and enjoyable for as many people as possible. That's my humanism. I think sometimes humanism does turn into a teleological utopian pursuit, as Professor Gray so prolifically points out. But it doesn't need to be rooted in a kind of utopian promise. We can be humanists without promises. And that's where I find myself. Well, that's about all I have time for today. I hope you'll pick up the book and and read it if it interests you. Uh, Check out some of his shorter writing online. I'll link to a few things and a few reviews uh, in the show notes that I find valuable. And uh, and write to me if you have thoughts about this, if you have questions, if you have suggestions for follow-up podcasts or writing that you would be interested in reading, uh, please write to me at ryan at lifeaftergod.org. If you like the work that we're doing at Life After God, I would encourage you to support us. Uh, We have a lot of new plans for this year. Uh, You can make a recurring monthly donation to the work that we're doing at Life After God by going to my Patreon page at patreon.com slash lifeaftergod. Of course, follow us on social media. All of our social media uh, links can be found at our website, lifeaftergod.org. Thank you so much for spending this time with me. Until next time, my name is Ryan Bell, and this has been the Life After God podcast. 